This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. I am Hugo Villar. I'm the Director for Science and Technology at UC San Diego Extension. And I'm here to introduce Dr. Samian Krugliak, who's a Senior Director for Research Informatics at Illumina. He has been working at Illumina, one of our major genomics companies here in the San Diego region, for 14 years. So he started straight from a postdoc, and he is one of those rare persons that hasn't changed companies like 10 times in three years. Before that, he did a postdoc at USC, and he has a doctorate in applied math from Cornell University. So without much more, please welcome Samian. Thank you. Thank you very much for the intro, and and thank you all for for coming. So um, I'd like this to be as informal as possible. Please feel free to ask questions throughout. I do have to remember to repeat the questions since since I'm mic'd and and you're not. What I was planning to do was give you an overview of the Illumina technology and talk about next-gen sequencing uh, in general. Before I do that, just to uh, give me a sense of how fast I should go through all of these various ideas, do people have general familiarity with Illumina and what Illumina does? If you're familiar, could you raise your hand, please? Okay, so generally familiar. And details of how next-gen sequencing works? Okay, to some, but not, 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 not all. So, so I'll go through it. So when I joined Illumina, it was a um, very different place, uh, on a very different campus. Now you can see that it's a pretty big company of over 2,700 people, really about five minutes away from here. When I joined, there were about 50 people, and we were thinking about how to do uh, genotyping on the microarray technology, and then all of this next-gen sequencing stuff happened. So that's, that's the story that I'll tell you today. This um, mission statement of ours that our CEO, Jay Flatley, had a big role in, illuminates advancing human health by unlocking the power of the genome. So what that means is that we essentially build the tools that allow our customers to have an impact on human health. And in, in, in some specific applications, we try to have that impact ourselves. Some um, geography. The, the headquarters is just here in San Diego, but you'll see offices popping in all around the world. We have a big research facility in England, which is actually where the Selexa sequencing technology is from which is now the Illumina sequencing technology. We also have a big office in Northern California, as well as manufacturing in Singapore and sales offices all around the world. That gives you just a little bit of a sense for for the organization. So the focus really right now at Illumina is to develop the best sequencing instruments. So how do we enable people to sequence as many genomes, exomes, regions of interest, whatever else they'd like to do? We want to provide 
uh, end-to-end solutions and deploy them on the cloud. Our cloud offering is called BaseSpace. So the idea is that you go to this easy-to-use website and you just say analyze, and then at the end of the day, you get these beautiful reports with the conclusions of, of whatever you're trying to do. And um, the, the other major goal is to enable uh, clinical sequencing. So what are the tests that are being done today, which are maybe either incomplete or expensive, that can be um, extended or replaced using sequencing technology? The bioinformatics group specifically focuses on the statistical analysis and the methods development associated with these goals. And the subjects that I'll touch on briefly are primary analysis methods, and I'll tell you what that what those are, secondary analysis applications, some of the stats involved, and the multidisciplinary collaborations. My concluding slide will, t- will speak to sort of the skill sets that you may want to have if you're interested in doing work like this. Okay? So um, what I'll go through is a little bit of the actual technology, how is it that we sequence DNA, and then the focus on the analysis, because that's what I do. That's what my group does. So it all starts with a little bit of DNA. We take DNA from a bunch of cells, and then we chop them into little pieces. And then in parallel, we sequence each of those pieces. And then once you have a whole bunch of these pieces sequenced, you can start to do analysis. So. If, if you're not familiar with this, you can imagine a huge jigsaw puzzle. So you have some sort of a picture that you can't really see, but what you can do is you can chop it up into little tiny pieces, and then you can see the individual pieces. And then the question is, how do you put those pieces back together and yield uh, useful information about the original landscape that you weren't able to see? So what happens with this, with this little bit of DNA? Well, once we chop up the DNA into little pieces, and when I mean little pieces, I mean in the order of, let's say, 500 base pairs. And just for reference, the human genome is in the order of 3 billion base pairs. So these are really little pieces, but you have many, many of them. So each of these little pieces goes on to what looks a lot like a microscope slide. And you have this molecule of DNA just sticking out on this, uh, on this glass slide. And then, because it's really hard to read information from one molecule of DNA, you replicate it in place. And there is this cool uh, amplification process called bridge amplification. And when you're done, that one little molecule is now a clonal cluster. So for each of the little molecules that landed on the glass slide, now you have a cluster of like 1,000 molecules. And then when you aggregate signal across 1,000 molecules, then you can actually get some useful information. That's the gist of it. So what happens to these clusters of molecules next? Well, we know this red sequence because it's the same on each of the clusters. And so we can hybridize a primer there. And now, for each different cluster, you have all different possible sequences of DNA on those those individual molecules. So what we do is we just add a letter via the usual mechanism of DNA replication, except these letters that are swimming around are all labeled in different colors. The A, C, G, and T all has a different color. So 
all over your glass slide, you have some green spots, some blue spots, some red spots, and those spots say, hey, in this cluster of molecules, that first letter is an A, is a C, is a G, is a T. So then what you do is you take your image, record your information, and then add your next letter, and so on and so forth. And every time you add a letter, you take an image in each of these four color channels. So by the time you string together all your images, you can actually just read off the colors. And therefore, because you know the color of each base that's labeled, you can just read off the sequence. So after this um, assay is complete, for each of, let's say, a billion of these clusters all over your microscope slide, you get a sequence of, let's say, about 100 letters that say, okay, there is a molecule containing the sequence of 100. There is this other molecule um, containing this sequence of 100. Then we actually wind up flipping the molecule over and reading 100 from the other end. Okay? So that's the, um, all I'm going to say about the assay. Hopefully that gives you a decent idea of how sequencing is done. All in parallel, a huge number of little molecules, and you get a little snippet from each. Okay. Any questions about that before I go get into how you actually analyze the resulting data? Okay. So, the, what comes off of these instruments then is a huge number of images, and I, I really mean huge. So it's a vast amount of imaging data, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how much probably in the next slide. But the first thing you got to do is you have to analyze these images. All of those colored spots on the image, you have to find where they are using the software tools that you write. Then there's a process that I'll talk about template generation. That is finding all of the cluster molecules, even though some lit up, some didn't in the first image. You have to find them all. All of these images, you have to properly align them so you can make sure that you're dealing with the same spot on every image when you're doing your analysis. You then have to extract intensity information and normalize it. And once you have normalized intensity information, you can actually call bases and translate it into ACGNT. But first, you have to correct for certain effects, and you also have to assign a probability score because people want to know how confident you are in the base that you call. So these are, uh, I'll go through just a subset of these steps just to give you a flavor for the type of math and computer science that's involved. So here's your, um, what I've been calling a microscope slide. We call it a flow cell because there's a lot of biochemistry that happens, a lot of liquid handling there. It's broken up into these little bits that we can easily image. And as I said before, we take an image for A, C, G, and T in every sequencing cycle. So you can imagine if we do in the order of 200 sequencing cycles, one to reveal each letter, times four times the number of individual imaging sections. That starts to give you a sense for why we take thousands and thousands and thousands of images in every experiment. So here's the first problem, spot finding. You're given an image like this. This is an old image, so this is a much, much simpler problem than, than our current uh, images offer. But your job is to identify every spot. And by eye, you can do it. I mean, there's a spot, and there's a spot, and here's a spot. 
but you have to write software that does it, right? So, so you can imagine looking at pixels across a line and saying, well, here's the pixel pattern that defines a spot, and here's how I can do it really, really fast. And that's, that's a type of thing that goes into spot finding. You do essentially linear scans across the pixels and look for certain patterns. So now you actually have to identify the location of every cluster, every one of those molecules that landed on the microscope slide and then formed that cluster via the amplification process. Where are they all? And why is this hard? If you can find spots, why can't you just you know, find those spots and you're done on the first image? Well, not all of the spots light up in the first image. In the first image, if it's in the A channel, it's only those spots that happen to be A in that cycle. So what you have to do is you actually have to combine information across the first few images until you're confident that you've seen each of the clusters light up at least once. And there are various tricks that you use to do this. But in the end, you want to make sure that you're looking at the same cluster across your images because that, that's the molecule you're trying to sequence. And you want to know that this particular molecule is ACGTCCT if in one image you're looking at one molecule, in the next image without knowing it you're looking at a different molecule, the results are going to be impossible to interpret. So even after you've built your template and you know where all the spots are, now from image to image, you have to align them. So line them up so that you're looking at the exact same spot in every image. And the way that we do this, because you see you have this random pattern in cycle one, in cycle two, the pattern looks quite different because um, the second base is different from the first, right? It's in, one, in cycle one, you may have an A. In cycle two, you may have a G. But there are a certain subset of sequences which are A in cycle one and also A in cycle two. So you'll have certain spots, like this one is in this image. It's also in this image. This one is here and here. This one is here and here. And if you can identify the ones that are in common between the images, you can line them up using some sort of like a cross-correlation function. And you can put these images into the same reference frame. Specifically, what you're going to do in this alignment is you're going to identify these spots and then you are going to build like a master template that says, here are the physical location of all my spots. And then for each image, you're just going to do this uh, shifting around until you find the right XY offset. And then you're going to do like a least squares af uh, fit via an affine transformation that really lines everything up perfectly. And then your, your images are all in the same reference frame. Okay? And I know this is really, really fast for a fairly complex process, but I just want to give you a flavor for the type of thing that's going on under, under the hood. So let me speak a little bit to the amounts of data that we're dealing with here. Um, when you sequence a single human genome, and that's typically in the order of 120 gig of sequence because you don't want to just have, it's not 3 billion, even though that they're 3 billion letters, because you want each position covered many times so you can look at SNPs and other variants and so you can have confidence in your calls. So typically you cover every position about 30 or 40 times, hence the um, 120 gig number. 
but the actual image data for each genome is in the order of eight terabytes. So we're talking about sequencing now tens of thousands of genomes per quarter. And for each genome that you sequence, that's how much data you generate. So how do we deal with it? We throw them all out. The images are never saved. What that means is that all of that, so I described uh, maybe a tenth of what has to happen in image processing. All of that has to happen before the next image is collected because you can't afford to save it. So that speaks to how fast your methods need to be. You have to process this data very, very rapidly. By the time you extract intensities, um, you, you have a big reduction down to 480 gig. Typically, we don't save that either. And then you have what are called the reads. So these are the actual snippets of DNA, the sequence, ACGT, and the associated probability quality scores. So there, a good way to think about it is one byte per base. Two bits for your base, um, six bits for your quality score, even though we're trying to push that down a bit. When you are actually trying to compare one genome to another, the positions that are different, those are your variant calls, that can all be captured in about 500 megabytes of data. So that's a lot more manageable. So the implications of not saving images, we already talked about it. You have to process really fast. So we have like this little competition between the engineers who are building the imaging system, the chemists who have to have the chemical reaction happen, and our team, we have to make the software happen. And, okay, who's going to be the bottleneck right now, right? So if analysis doesn't keep up, then we have to hold up the imaging. So, so that's been a really healthy competition in driving everything faster and faster. Right now, they're all pretty evenly matched, so we're waiting to see who makes the next breakthrough, and then the other two are in trouble. So the total processing time budget per cycle given imaging and chemistry is 160 seconds. And because you're dealing with a portion of those images, not, not the total amount at a time, you have to process about 20 gig of data through these algorithms in that amount of time. And then it's all cleared, and you have to start over with cycle two. Okay. So what, yes, yes, question. Ah, the question was how many bases per cycle. Every cycle sequences one letter. Oh, okay. So, uh, 200. So, do you mean? Yeah, because you have um, in parallel uh, several billion clusters. So, so, because of that, yes. So, you're collecting a letter in each cluster. So, think of it as several billion letters. Is, 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 is this much data to process, not, not one letter. Mm-hmm. So we were thinking a lot about the fact that our imaging systems are very intricate and very expensive and that we're imaging in four colors. And this is just to give you a sense of a brand new system that was just released in the last couple of months called our NextSeq system. And it only uses two colors instead of four. Well, how are you going to do two colors? You have four bases, A, C, G, and T. So the way it's going to work, or the way it does work, the G base, it's actually dark. So no signal is actually signaled. So when something doesn't light up, that's a G. Then you have your two bases, which are colored in the two colors that you have. And you have your fourth base, the A, which actually is colored in both color channels. 
This gives you a whole new set of image processing challenges. You can imagine that instead of looking for the brightest among your four images when you're trying to decide on ACGT, now you have some sort of per cycle clustering problem that you have to solve. The upshot of this, though, was that we were able to very dramatically simplify our optics and we went from a $700,000 instrument that's able to sequence a genome in a day to about a $250,000 instrument that's able to sequence a genome in a day. So um, there are some other advantages still to the four-die system, but this type of innovation has enabled dramatic cost reductions. What else is new? Well, I told you about those spots being randomly deposited on our microscope slide. And that actually has a cost. Because when you put spots down at random, some of them are really, really close together. Some of them are kind of far apart. Some of them are really small. Some of them are a little bigger because of the amplification process. So if you think about dropping stuff randomly, you'll never get as much stuff on there as if you had a a patterned grid. If you had a nice hexagonal grid, you could jam more stuff in there. And so that's what we've done. We've actually very recently moved toward a patterned flow cell. And I won't go into the details of how that works, but the ramifications of that is that we got quite a bit denser, from 1,100 clusters per millimeter squared to 1,600. This notion of generating a template was a really time-intensive computational step, it's gone because we have our rigid grid, we know what our grid looks like, and the clusters can only occur at the um, corners, at the intersections of the grid. And what this has allowed us to do is to make really regular-sized clusters very, very densely and very close together. So the pitch now is um, in the order of actually 700 nanometers feature to feature, and you can imagine how much information you can jam onto a single microscope slide. So what does this mean in terms of the instruments we release? So this next seek that uses two colors is a relatively inexpensive instrument, and it generates a genome's worth of data in about a day. This HiSeq X, as we're calling it, takes advantage of our patterned flow cells and also a very, very fast scan time, 12 millimeters per second, where it used to be like three. So when you combine all of this, this is really the product that's that's made a splash. And the reason these um, data volumes, 1.8 T of actual read sequence data in under three days. So what that means is that if you actually buy this system, even when you amortize hardware and when you include all of the sequencing reagents, you get to below the $1,000 genome. And that's been a target for the field for quite some years now, and the, this, this X10 actually enables it. So, so we, just, we just started shipping this, and there has been just a lot of excitement in the field because people feel that once the genome is under $1,000, you can do really big population studies affordably. Yes, question. So the question was about the relative speed of these two systems, 29 hours versus three days. But what you have to look at is the output. One is outputting only 120 G of data, so a single genome, and 1.8 T. I forget how many genomes that is, but you can, you can do the arithmetic. It's, 
So the throughput is, is, is really much, much higher, hence the uh, time penalty. Additional questions before we get off of systems and onto applications? Yes, please. Um, I know that ah, great question. So the question was, uh, what's the difference between a MySeq and these systems that I'm describing? So the MySeq is sort of the smaller version of this guy. So it's, uh, the, the footprint is much smaller. It's a smaller box. The throughput, I believe, is in the order of um, 15 gig per run at this point. And it's very well suited to, like, targeted sequencing, maybe an exome, maybe an RNA-seq experiment. But it's much more for um, these targeted applications at a fairly low, low, low scale or, or, or targeted. You wouldn't do, like, lots of whole genomes with a MySeq. Okay? So let me tell you about applications. I know this slide looks scary, and I, and I won't go into all of these details. But... Once you have all of, this, um, all of this read data, you actually need to, to translate it into something useful and something biologically relevant. So one of the more complicated workflows that we have analyzes cancer. And the reason I put the slide up is because when you are analyzing cancer, you basically have to make use of all of the tools in your, in your, in your toolbox. And what I'm showing here and sorry that the font is so small, is you have your DNA reads that you took from, your, from a tumor. Then you have, sorry, that's the normal. That's the reads from a tumor. Typically, when you study um, cancer, what you do is you collect DNA samples from the tumor itself, and then you also collect DNA from the normal of the same patient. And the idea is, Something is very, very wrong in those tumor cells, and it creates this incessant growth. Well, if you can figure out the difference between the tumor and the normal cells, maybe a drug can be created that kills those tumor cells but leaves the normal ones alone. That's why you are incredibly interested in those differences. And the normal control allows you to look specifically at those differences as opposed to other harmless inherited variation. What you also do often is you include RNA data because you want to know what genes are expressed in the tumor uh, that, that, that are also having an effect on the patient. All of these steps, this, this entire workflow, we have alignment as a first step that I'll talk about in a, in a, in a minute. Then we have uh, variant calling steps all over here. We have some kind of annotation, uh, and then we combine everything into a useful annotated report that says, here are the variants that matter. And then the, our customers will typically look at that and say, oh, wait a minute. I know that there's a drug that works when people have this particular variant. So that's, that's in essence, what's happening. Uh, but, but you can see that it's a lot of steps in a fairly complex workflow. This already happens after the instrument is done. So this is what's happening either in base space or on a local cluster. So let's uh, address the alignment and variant calling problem a little bit. What I talked about is that you collect these snippets of DNA, which are, let's say, a couple hundred bases long. And from the Human Genome Project has given you a reference. Here is what a typical human genome looks like. Here it is, 3 billion letters arranged by chromosome. So what you have to then do is say, hey, this snippet of 200 came from this location on chromosome 7. 
and then you place all of them. And once you've placed them, now you can look what's different between your sample and the reference. That's the gist of it. So what, what does this mean? If you had a Word document and I gave you a long word and said, where's in the document? You'd say Control-F, and then you'd type in the word, and then you'd find it in the document. Essentially, that's what alignment tries to be, except because of variance and sequencing errors, a lot of your words are spelled wrong. And your document, by the way, it's really long. It's like about 5,000 copies of War and Peace. That's your document. And these words that you're looking for, there are a few billion of them. And you probably have about 12 hours or so to do the full analysis before customers get annoyed. So that's the challenge of trying to align all these little bits to the reference. Additionally, the reference is not like any document that you see in, in, or, or a book that you see because there are these like repeats everywhere and long regions of like A, 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 A. So it's difficult sometimes to find patterns in a document like this. So there is, uh, the alignment problem is not new. It's been around for a long time, and it has been solved in the past via dynamic programming. Those of you in the field will have heard of like the Smith-Waterman algorithm for, for, for doing this. But for this type of data, it's just too slow. So there are other methods in the field. BWAGATK is a very popular choice. We have our own because we need to go really fast. It's called Isaac, and it's published in, in a recent uh, issue of Bioinformatics. Uh, it's uh, the alignment and the variant calling. They're much, much faster than BWAGATK. The trick is that they use very high memory machines. BWAGATK were designed when you couldn't just say, hey, get a computer with 100 gig of RAM. But now you can, so you may, as well take advantage. You, uh, you may as well take advantage. So you have these huge caches, these huge indices of every possible 32-mer, and you do a lot of computer science tricks to take advantage. Um, you do a, a sorting of, this, of, of all of your uh, reads that you've placed in the genome. You get rid of duplicates. And then you figure out the differences between the reference and what you observed in your sample via an efficient Bayesian caller. And we have deployed all of these tools on BaseSpace so people who have access to the internet can just go and analyze this data. So the problem with identifying variants is relatively straightforward because People have, once you have your alignment done, because people have either their homozygous, so they inherited the same base from mom and dad, or their heterozygous, in which case they have, bo- uh, uh, let's say, a G and a T at a particular location, one inherited from mom, one inherited from dad. And what you expect if you cover that position with, let's say, 30 reads, on average, you expect to see 15 of one base and 15 of the other. And you can do some good stats to distinguish your heterozygotes from your homozygotes. You have a lot of power. Things get complicated with cancer because when you take uh, DNA from a tumor, it's highly heterogeneous. The tumor cells are different from each other. And they're also contaminated by normal cells. Sometimes they think they got some of the tumor in a biopsy, but it's actually mostly normal and maybe 10% tumor. So now your allele frequency, so in other words, the frequency with which the base that you care about occurs, maybe it's only there at 
5% frequency, 10% frequency, and you have to sort this out. That's why the normal control is, um, is really important because you're comparing your normal to this highly contaminated tumor. And that, that whole process is called the search for somatic variants. Question, yes. The question was where, where the normal is, is, is coming from. Typically, the normal is not coming from adjacent normal tissue because that would likely be contaminated with the tumor. So typically, the normal is coming from either blood or saliva, depending on what type of cancer we're dealing with. Certainly, it's something different if you're dealing with a blood cancer. The reason this is okay is because DNA is DNA. Um, this, the DNA is not organ-specific, so you can do that collection from anywhere. If you were doing RNA, you'd actually have to get it from the same tissue, which is why no one does normal controls for RNA. It would just be too hard. Um, DNA is the normal control from either blood or saliva. Yes. So we spoke about challenges, about allele frequencies. The other big challenge in cancer is that some cancer genomes are really messed up. They look not much like the reference. So people are basically all the same. You know, pick two people in this room, and at any given position, the DNA is the same 99.9% of the time. Tumor genomes can be very different. They have these huge rearrangements, duplications, multiple copies of chromosomes. Sometimes they can be relatively clean, but sometimes they can be a huge mess. So dealing with that for alignment and variant calling poses its own set of challenges. So to handle this, uh, Illumina developed this method called Strelka. It's also published in Bioinformatics. It models continuous allele frequencies. It uses... uh, uh, kind of a joint collar that takes the normal and the tumor into account at the same time. And the result is that we get a very good sensitivity, very good ability to detect these uh, variants, which are low frequency, even when the sample is very much contaminated. Okay, so the last application that I'll, I'll, I'll speak to is metagenomics. For those unfamiliar, this is basically the study of different bacteria. Most, sometimes the, the application is agriculture. Often the application is the bacteria that live on us, in us, etc. You may be surprised to learn that there are 10 times more bacterial cells in your body than there are human cells. If that seems really counterintuitive, remember that the bacterial cells are a whole lot smaller than the human cells, which is why we sort of look human. Um, We can only culture a very small fraction of them. Most of them just don't grow. Try to culture them, replicate them, nothing. So what you can do with next-gen sequencing is just take a collection from anywhere in the body, basically, and just sequence and just see what's out there. And every metagenomics experiment yields all kinds of new stuff that no one has ever seen before. And there are all kinds of really interesting stories of metagenome affecting human health. I won't go into those right now, but, but if you're interested, you can see some real miracle cures that um, involved taking a healthy metagenome and swapping it in for, a, for an unhealthy one. An interesting ex- uh, ex- uh, toy experiment that was done at, uh, at, at the Knight Lab in Colorado 
they took um, samples off of people's keyboard in the lab, and through the bacteria that reside on the skin, they were able to identify whose keyboard was whose in the, in the lab. So anyway, you, l- l- lots of really interesting and cool applications. So we'd like to just sequence everything, but there's just, there are a ton of bacteria, and it's, it's really hard to interpret. So one thing that we can do is there's a little region in, in, in bacteria that tends to be used for classification. It's very, very different from one bacterial strain to another. And adjoining it are very highly conserved regions, which are perfect for some sort of pull-out assays. So you pull this region out via the conserved sequence, and then you read it off via the variable sequence, and that's how you do your classification. So basically, the visualization problem is very sophisticated. So once you classify all of these different bacteria, you want to know um, how to make sense of the data, and the classifications come at the species level, the genus level, at, at, all, at the phylum level, at, at all these different levels. And Chris developed some really nice visualization tools, which will be on base space shortly and are now available on this website that I can't access, um, that allow you to easily switch from level to level and study your classifications. And as I wrap up, let me just speak to um, the, the skills that I find most useful. So my training is in applied math. The particular branches of math that I think are most valuable are probability and statistics. Some linear algebra, but mostly probability and statistics. Computer science, this is probably the skill set that I focus on most because with the amounts of data that people are generating now, you have to basically be able to code efficiently. You have to know your way around a cluster. And you, you can't be intimidated by these data sets that are hundreds of gig, if not terabytes in size. Biology. So you need to understand the important questions. If someone is just pure computer scientist, there tends to be a little bit of a language gap. It, it, it's really hard to get the requirements right if you just don't have any understanding of the, bio, of the biological questions. Of course, the communication skills, um, you need to bridge these disciplines. Everything at Illumina goes via cross-functional team. So in just about every meeting, you have engineers, biochemists, biologists, bioinformaticists, software engineers, and you have to be able to explain what you're talking about to non-experts. And then you have to go to a highly technical meeting with just your discipline and get into the details of the algorithms. So just um, a plug for local bioinformatics programs. I see the description in the bioinformatics programs, and then I see very similar descriptions in the, in the job openings in, in, in bioinformatics. So, so that's the overview. I wanted to leave um, plenty of time for questions, and I also know that uh, it's getting pretty late for you guys. So happy to take questions as, as, as you like, and I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Yes? It's a great question. So the question was, for job placement, what's the difference between a master's and a PhD? And to me, uh, it's, it's, it's a slightly different job leveling. So, so people who come in straight from a PhD, they tend to enter right into the scientist track, whereas uh, people with a master's will either start at the associate scientist level or our programmer level. 
depending on the experience. And the PhD is certainly useful in demonstrating some level of original research, but it's not a must-have. The question was whether we do viral sequencing. We, we know that some of our customers do. In fact, there are a lot of efforts around sequencing and assembling the, um, the AIDS virus and all of the, 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 the variation around it. Within Illumina, we have actually focused on bacterial sequencing for, for no great reason, just because there are a lot of different applications we could focus on. But, but, but certainly customers do. Yes? So the question is that I, I described uh, the analysis that essentially gets you to the variants, but not much about the interpretation and the use in, in the healthcare industry. That is, at least at the annotation step, what we like to say is, you know, this variant is in the coding region, and by the way, it creates a stop codon, so you may want to look at this one. But the actual interpretation, you really want the deep skill in the particular condition that you're studying. So that type of work is done much more by our customers than by us, though there are some exceptions. So, for example, recently we had a cystic fibrosis diagnostic test cleared through the FDA, and there we really have to go end-to-end to where we say, hey, here's your report, either a cystic fibrosis carrier or not, and here's the relevant variant. So there are cases where we take it end-to-end, but there are also cases where we enable our customers and their expertise. Yes? Yes, of course. The question was about interdisciplinary teams and whether I could give a concrete example of a project where multiple disciplines participated. The easiest example are the um, projects which actually build a sequencer. So imagine that we're going to build the next seek or the high seek X. So the engineers, their role, figure out the imaging, figure out the electronics. The software engineers are in there saying, okay, let's build the methods, let's optimize. We have people working on the FPGA, on you know d- d- down into these low-level systems. Then the uh, um, molecular biologists they start running data, and then they say, "Does this data make any sense? Are we making sequencing errors at a rate of 0.1 percent or 20 percent? Hey, where's the statistical data analysis?" So the bioinformaticists come in, and we look across many, many runs, and we say. This system is just not good enough yet. Here are the problems that we're observing. Engineers, you've got to do this. Uh, biochemists, we need this, and, and, and so on and so forth. Does that address, address the question? Of course. So the question was whether we have, uh, in these interdisciplinary teams, positions for MDs, Yes, and, and, and there are. There are a fairly small but growing number of MDs at Illumina who are focused on clinical sequencing uh, and then the various FDA-related projects. And Yes. So the question was how sophisticated the product line is in terms of ability to study diseases like diabetes and various cancers. And we are getting a lot of really encouraging stories where I think we have seen pretty dramatic successes one is in the area of, of, of cancer, where people who, who really didn't have any other options were able to find drugs that were effective at least for some amount of time. 
And the other big success story is actually very challenging to diagnose developmental delay in children. So there we and again, this is mostly work done by our customers, which is enabled by the sequencers. But there are many cases now in the literature where kids have been in and out of doctors' offices for years, and no one can say what the problem is, and then they get whole genome or whole exome sequenced. And there it is. There's this variant. And then you can draw connections to the literature. And sometimes it's actually actionable. But even if not, the family at least has resolution. Yes? The question is, um, as a biologist, how, how language heavy is bioinformatics and what are the good languages to learn? So I think that Python is very, very useful. Our core development for the really methods-intensive stuff tends to be C++ or C-sharp, depending on, um, on the particular tool and the, the, the specific developer. Some people use Perl, uh, not, 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 maybe not as many as, as used to. So, so really, Python, C++, C-sharp. Yep. Yeah, so the question was, where do I see things going in the next 10 years and whether th- there's still a need or whether, I guess, essentially the problems are, are solved? And, and I think that um, where bioinformatics is going to go is much further downstream. So we're going we're gonna to figure it out to where everyone is basically converged in a particular aligner, a particular variant caller. But to me, the interpretation problems are much, much harder. And I think we're tip of the iceberg. So still, I mean, it's the the additional diagnostic yield is still modest. And by no means is it obvious that a healthy person would benefit from having their whole genome sequenced. But we want to get to a place where we can credibly say, sequence every baby at birth, and here's how you're going to use it. And I think we're getting pretty close to saying that every single new cancer should be sequenced. But certainly, there's no consensus on that yet. Right now, we're sequencing a small fraction of a percent. So lots of work to be done yet. Yes? The question is around what fraction of cancer cells or cancers have this very, very messed up, very different genome versus what fraction is fairly quiet. And it's in the order of 50-50, and it's by cancer type uh, more so than by cancer case. And what happens is we have a lot of error correction mechanisms within our, within our genome. So DNA replication is not perfect, but there are all kinds of things that kick in when a mistake is made, and they go and they edit, they correct the mistake, they, they fix. Well, sometimes fairly early in the cancer, one of those mechanisms of repair is damaged by a mutation, and then everything just goes. And so... It is very, very rare, and I'd be pretty surprised to hear a physician say that, hey, once we find a SNP and a cancer, that's it. it. It's typically far more complicated than that. So the question was, what methods will best complement sequencing to boost diagnostic yield? I think that sequencing has the opportunity to have much greater diagnostic yield once we understand the genome better and once we actually know what different genes do and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of the technologies which, co- which complement, I think it's the deep expertise in the particular 
areas of interest, so the cancer specialists, the, the, whether they're actually looking at the cancer, whether they're citing their experience with other cancers. In terms of other technologies, I'm, I'm not actually well-versed to, 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 to say what could be good um, technology to complement. The, the question is whether this type of sequencing data can be seen in some other way and whether that's a concern. It's certainly not a concern because anything that has a positive impact on human health, we're, we're, we're all for it. We'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll find something to do. It's, but I, I think that there are certain things which you can get much more easily from the DNA, which would be very, very hard to spot. I mean, people certainly try to study proteins. They're really, really complicated. There are certainly other conditions where the problem is solved, perhaps, via some really inexpensive mechanism, and you don't need sequencing, that's fine. But I think that there, there, there are quite a few applications where it would be really tough without the genetic data. The question, the question was, when will the doctors actually be motivated to do the sequencing after what level of other test? And the comment was that it's expensive. So I think it's really different. I think you'll see that for applications like NIPT, when you're trying to uh, look for possible Down syndrome um, and you're trying to replace amniocentesis, you'll see that the uptake is actually very, very, very good. In other areas, you'll see a reluctance. You'll see a skepticism from the doctors because it's new to them as well. But maybe I would challenge the, the comment that it's expensive. I have dealt with uh, several cases where sequencing was involved for cancer, and the, the, the people involved told me that it was the least expensive part of their entire process. Virtually every test, because you know a genome now is, will be under $1,000, whereas the MRIs, and especially these extremely expensive chemotherapeutic agents, they were talking about $100,000 for a treatment series. So I do think that the costs are getting to be such that it's comparable or cheaper than alternative technologies. Um, one other point to make is I think that uptake will increase once effectiveness is demonstrated and once the payers start reimbursing. Yeah, you know, the imaging technology, there have been a few side projects trying to image cells directly and, and, and doing other such things, but nothing serious. It's been really focused on, like, make the best sequencer, make, 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 make the best array product. So it has been a very focused effort in that sense. You guys go through the FDA process for 510K? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I'm sorry. The question was whether we go through the actual FDA process of 510K submissions, and, and, and yes, we do, and we have, and we will continue to do so. So for the bioinformatics group, it's much more degrees in math and computer science. However, the people in molecular biology are extremely interested because then this person is perfect for bridging the gap in the multidisciplinary team where they also speak to the, uh, to the software developers, the informaticists, and sometimes the data sets that they generate, they can do preliminary analysis, and that's extremely helpful. Thanks, Sanya, for a wonderful time. Okay. Thanks, everyone.